Good morning, everybody. First off, I just have to say that was possibly one of the most beautiful things I had ever seen. Thank you so much for reading the scripture this morning. The only thing that would have been more adorable, in my opinion, is if it were my kids, but you know, but thank you so much. Um, wow, that was awesome. Uh, God's faithfulness through generations. Uh, thank you. Um, as I start, I do have a confession to make. Uh, this does not deal with uh, sin in, in certain ways, but I must confess that as a man, I'm not very good as a car guy. I know that comes naturally to a lot of men, not so much for me. I can change my oil or a tire. I've changed a few starters in my day, but I've never been able to pop open the hood when my car is hacking and wheezing like it has the flu and say, oh yes, that is fill in the blank. Uh, I always feel bad when I'm driving down the interstate and I see someone broken down on the side of the road because part of me wishes that I could stop and help, but I could stand there and look and be like, yeah, it doesn't start. That's all I got. I've never been that kind of a guy to just look at a car or to hear a car and say, yeah, this is your problem. Um, I I can't open the hood and figure out what to do. Uh, But there are some guys that have that, that skill set, they have that ability. Uh, I've, I've had some wonderful mechanics in my life to bail me out of mistakes that I have made with my vehicles. Uh, but in that regard, the psalm that we're looking at this morning is like that mechanic. David's poetry throughout the psalms is like a mechanic that can just pop open the hood and say, there's your problem right there. And Psalm 51 in particular is this beautiful psalm that says, all right, look at the human heart. The problem is sin. And the only way to fix that is repentance. And so David is uh, like a spiritual, spiritual mechanic in this sense uh, because he, this psalm is written and crafted in such a way that it, it's... it's singing and screaming out that the Christian heart, the heart of the believer, the heart of God's people must be marked by repentance. There's no other way around it. And I know that uh, here, especially in America, where we have a different denomination on every street corner, uh, we tend to get into denominational bickering. Uh, What is the proper mode of baptism? Do you dunk or do you sprinkle? Uh, what, at what time should someone be baptized? Are you allowed to baptize infants? Uh, I say yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, do, but there are so many things that we argue about in these little distinctives that are important, but they're not necessarily going to withhold someone uh, from salvation. But there is one thing that all denominations need to agree on. One thing that all believers need to agree on is that you cannot call yourself a Christian and continue living a life of sin. That there has to be a turning point where you repent and say, that is not me. I would even go so far as to say that if someone calls themselves a Christian and yet refuses to repent, I would even question if they actually have the Spirit within them. 
Is there actual repentance? Because if there's no turning away from sin, you have to question the fruit that they are producing. We do not know people's hearts, but we can judge the fruit that someone is producing, the spiritual fruit, the, the, the outcome of their, their life and their behavior. And if, there's no, if there is no turning from sin, have they truly repented? And this can reveal itself in three ways throughout this psalm. We're going to see that it can be revealed through a person's position. It can be revealed through power. And it is revealed through praise. Before I go any further, uh, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time together this morning where we can come together and worship You through song and prayer and through Your Word. And God, as we, uh, as we sit here now uh, to receive Your Word, I pray that You would give us open ears and broken hearts. God, I pray that You would pour Your Spirit into this place. That You would bring understanding to Your Word. That this would not be my efforts. This would not be my abilities. But God, that You would speak through a redeemed sinner like myself. Do not let Your Word return void. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Now first, as I was saying, is that you have to admit your position. Starting this psalm, uh, there's a, a quick history lesson in the, uh, the, the liner notes that for those of you that actually have your Bible with you. The, the beginning of this psalm opens by saying, to the choir master, so this is for the church to sing, a psalm of David. It's directly applied to David. And then it says, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So not only do we have a purpose, not only do we have an author, we're even given a reason why this psalm was written. And as a quick history lesson, this comes from a, a time in David's rule where Scripture says that it was the time of year where kings went off into battle and David stayed home. His first mistake, his first sin even, is that instead of leading his people, he abandons his people and stays behind. And then he watches another man's wife and decides to take her for himself. And he gets another man's wife pregnant. And instead of dealing with his sin at that point, he says, I need to cover this up. So he brings Bathsheba's husband home, Uriah the Hittite, and tries to get him to be with his wife in a husbandly manner, if you will, for the children that are here. Um, doesn't work. And so David has Uriah killed in the line of duty so he can take Bathsheba as his own wife. And so it's just sin upon sin upon sin where David, instead of confessing his sin and repenting and churning, he's saying, all right, here's a small thing, let's cover it up. Oh no, this is getting bigger, let's cover it up. And it just keeps rolling until it becomes this huge fiasco to where now there's adultery and murder. And Nathan the prophet comes to David 
and says, he gives this, this beautiful story of, of, of sin and uh, a man taking another man's sheep and all this stuff. And David flies off the handle in rage and says, no, no, this has to be made right. And then Nathan says, you are that man. And at that point, David could have just immediately jumped on the defensive. I know my heart wants to go there and say, no, 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 let me explain. This is what happened. But no, what we're shown is that David was a broken man. He wept for his own sin. And he opens this psalm with, have mercy on me, O God. He's not trying to make excuses. He's not trying to to give explanations. He recognizes his position as a broken, sinful man. And he says, God, I have nothing in this transaction here. Have mercy on me. He is pleading with God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Not that he has anything to offer. Not because, God, look at what every, everything that I've done for you in the past. No, he says, God, according to your faithfulness. I mentioned last week that this is one of my favorite words in all of Scripture. This chesed word that describes God, God's covenant faithfulness to His people. And he says, because of the faithfulness that you have promised your people, God, that is what I'm appealing to. I don't deserve it. Clearly by my actions, I don't deserve mercy. But God, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me. These are, these are even legalistic terms to, to blot out transgressions that they would be so covered up that they're, they're not even seen anymore. These are cleansing terms to, to wash me and cleanse me that he, he wants his, his tainted soul made clean again. He is broken. He is tainted. And he's pleading to God to make things right. And he says... Against you, you only, have I sinned. And at this point, it's easy to say, whoa, 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 let's back this up a little bit because clearly David has sinned against his people. He sinned against Bathsheba and he definitely sinned against Uriah. And in his admission of sin, David says, no God, against you and you only have I sinned. Because there is truth to the matter that, that my sin, your sin, engages other people and it offends and hurts other people. But when you look at your position before an infinite Creator God, your sin is ultimately cosmic treason against the One who designed and created you. That every person, not just in this room, but every person on this planet, whoever has been and ever will be, is made in the image of God. And so when we sin against another person, we are sinning against the very God who created and designed and made that person. And so yes, your sin affects other people, but ultimately, your sin is against the God who has made all people. David admits his guilt. Admits that he deserves his punishment. Says that he has sinned against God alone. Done what is evil 
He says that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That whatever judgment God gives him, it's not too much. It's not uh, overbearing. It's not cruel and unusual punishment. But whatever judgment is brought against him, David says, I deserve it. Because I've sinned against you. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He admits that he is born into this sin. Not making excuses saying, well, I was born sinful, so this was just bound to happen at some point. No, he says, from the very core of my nature, I am born a sinner. We see this repeated throughout Scripture, but in Romans, Paul writes that therefore just as sin came into the world through one man being Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's not a person alive who is not born into sin except for the risen Lord Jesus. But every person here in this room, every person in this planet is born sinful. And just from the very mindset of understanding a child, for those of you that here that have children, either grown children or little children, or for those of you that at one point were a child yourself, think. Do you have to teach a child to be selfish? Do you ever have to teach your baby to say, no, that is mine? No, it comes naturally. It is part of our human nature. We do not want ourselves to be wronged. You do not want someone to take from you. That is not something that you are taught. That is part of your nature. As a child, did you have to be taught to lie or to cheat? And I'm not talking about huge things like cheating on a spouse or cheating on your taxes. Even just the very little things of not of withholding truth or or not being completely honest about the things that have gone wrong. These things are not taught. They are part of our broken, sinful nature. This is a concept, a a doctrine known as total depravity. Uh, Not in the concept that you are as depraved and evil as you ever will be, but the fact that we are in totality tainted by our sin. At the time of your birth, you are declared sinful. That's part of our tainted human nature. And the difficulty is that recognizing that first step, recognizing your position before a holy God, that's a very difficult step to take. Because if you're anything like me, you don't want to admit that you have done something wrong. It's natural to want to make excuses or to even say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not bad as that guy over there. You know, I might have done this and this, but at least I haven't done this. We like to make those excuses. And so it's difficult to step back and admit and say, yes, 
I'm broken. I'm sinful. I messed this up. Unfortunately, the next step of repentance is possibly the most difficult. Because that's admitting your power. David says in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He's recognizing that once he is aware of his broken and sinful nature, God starts revealing more and more of his own broken heart to him. And he says, uh, just look, look at the, the verbs that are popping out in the next several lines. He says, purge me, wash me, let me hear. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face. Create in me. Renew a right spirit. Cast me not away. Take not your Holy Spirit. Restore to me. Uphold me. It's just over and over again. He's saying, God, I need you to do these things because I cannot do it. He's appealing to God and say, I need you to make me clean. I need you to create a new heart within me. Restore me to that position before your face. In fact, some of these verbs, uh, the purge me and let me hear joy, uh, it, just for a quick little theology nerd moment, the, the, in the Hebrew, it's actually a future imperfect for you grammar nerds out there. But what he's saying is, you shall do this. Because the very act of coming before God and confessing his sin and recognizing that covenant faithfulness, David is saying, God, you've already promised that you will restore me, but I need you to do it. David's not doing the action. He's completely dependent upon a covenant God to restore him. For his birthday a couple of weeks ago, Isaac just got this new little, uh, it's a reversible uh, train table on one side and then you flip it over and it's got Lego on the other side. And I imagine that it's going to be magical, but it's still sitting there in the box. Um, but uh, every day for the, the past uh, couple of days, he keeps saying, Dad, I need you to put this together. Dad, I need you to put this together. Because he knows himself and he recognizes he is not able to put that table together in his own strength. And he needs me to do it for him. And on a much grander, more infinite scale, that is what David is admitting before the face of God right here. He says, I do not have the ability to do this myself. God, I need You to step in and to make me clean and to restore me. And so, we've been kind of flying at this 10,000 foot level and as we bring the plane down, I want to ask, when you are confronted with your own sin, where do you naturally go to? And I ask that because David here immediately jumps to admitting and confessing his sin and his need for God. But I know a lot of times, it's easy to put on the, the Christian mask and use all the Christian terms and, you know, well, you know, I, I sinned and so I just, I need an action plan. I just, I need to make a plan that this isn't going to happen again. I'm going to do this and this and this. Or, you know, I, I know that I messed up, but you know what? I'm just, I'm going to read my Bible more. 
Or maybe you say, well, you know, I just, I'm not praying enough. And, you know, if I just, if I just pray more, then, you know, I'm, I just, I won't keep falling into this sin over and over again. Those are all good things to do. But the difficulty is, if that is your immediate response to sin, you're relying on your own effort. And you're relying on your own power. I want to uh, read real quick from Ephesians chapter 2. Pretty much what Paul has to say about our own ability as, as broken, sinful people. But in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, Paul says, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. I mean, that's the Gospel in a nutshell. That in your brokenness, it doesn't say, Scripture doesn't say that you were sinned and you just needed to be, or that you were sick and you just needed to be healed. It doesn't say, well, it was, it was just a little wrong and you needed some correction. No, Scripture says that you are dead in your sin. And I don't, know, I don't know about you, but the last time I saw a dead person, he didn't do anything. He was dead. Incapable of bringing himself back to life. And that's what Scripture says about me and about you in your spiritual state. That you are not able to do this on your own, but that God does it as a gift of grace so that no one can boast. That you cannot say, you know what? I just pulled myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and I made myself better. No person is able to say that before the face of a holy God. In Ezekiel, We're told that God is the one that gives His people a new heart, a new spirit, that He changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And that is why this is the most difficult part of the process of repentance because you have to come to that point where you're not just recognizing, yes, I sinned, I messed up, but admitting that you have no ability within yourself to actually make yourself right before God. It's through Christ alone that that is possible. That is why we come together every week to celebrate that communally. As a congregation, we come together every week, not because this makes us feel better, which it might, not because it's like, well, I've got my spiritual checklist that I went to church this week, God loves me a little bit more. Awesome. But no, we come together because we are recognizing and admitting and confessing we are broken, sinful people that are unable to save ourselves apart from the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And when you admit that position before a holy God, when you admit 
not just your lack of power, but the fact that God alone has the power to restore you, that naturally flows into praise. John Piper has been quoted as saying that missions exists because worship does not. That if people were truly worshiping and praising the way that they, they recognize their position before God, that there would be no need for missions because it would naturally flow from the human heart. And here's the thing. We worship. We love to worship. It comes naturally to us. But the question is, what are you worshiping? Because it's real easy to get together with everybody. And for those, and I, this is another confession to make. Uh, I'm not, uh, as I call it, a sports ball guy. Uh, I, I've never been one to sit down and watch a game on TV. Like, going is one thing. That's exciting. There's the thrill of the crowd. But to actually sit down and watch whatever on TV, I, it's not my thing. But I, I know plenty of people that as soon as they get together the next day at work or wherever, they're like, oh, did you see that? And this guy did this. And like it, it, That praise naturally flows out. For those of you in the realm of social media, all you have to, to know about what a person worships is look at their Instagram. What kind of things are they posting and sharing about themselves in the world around them? And that will give you a direct insight into what matters to this person's heart. Look at the awards shows that we have on TV. We worship celebrities and these performers to such a point that they even have their own awards to celebrate how much they are loved. And we love them for it. Praise naturally flows from the human heart. But the deeper question is, what are you praising? We look at David. And when he recognizes his position before a holy God, his praise is not, God, look at what I did. Remember that time I killed Goliath? That was awesome. No, David says, that he will praise God alone. In verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Not saying, well, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. He's saying, God, when you restore me, when you make me clean, when you purify me, my life will naturally flow into such a way that it teaches other sinners about how wonderful you are. The restorative work that you do in my heart will teach other sinful people about your mercy and your grace. He says, deliver me, God, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. He's longing to worship. He doesn't want to depend on his own strength. He's crying out to God, I need you to help me worship you. Open my mouth. Because He knows the weight of His own sin and He knows that this does not come naturally to Him. In all honesty, 
Sunday mornings, it would be much easier to, to worship by sleeping in. Or to have a lake day. Or to do whatever it is that you want. But we recognize, hopefully you're here because you recognize your position in front of a holy God. And you come each and every Sunday as an admission and a confession of your dependence upon God. In Acts 4, we see the, 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 the disciples of Christ being questioned by uh, the, the religious leaders of that day, and they're being told, you need to stop talking about this Jesus, or you will be punished. And their response, they're, they're not trying to, to find loopholes, and well, we can do this. No, it, their response is, we can't do anything but talk about Jesus. Because of who we were and who He has restored us and made us to be, the only thing that we can do is go out and share that with everyone around us. David knows that because of his broken position before God, he has nothing to offer except what God has given to him in the first place. He says, I, I can't even bring you offering." Because it's not good enough. Because anything that you are bringing in your own effort is offensive. The only thing that we have to offer is our admission that we need Him to do it for us. There's a, 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 a theologian, pastor uh, named Derek Kidner. And he once wrote that the best of gifts is hateful to God without a contrite heart. Without that brokenness and dependence upon Him, the very best of things that you could offer are worthless. And David says, God, I need You to do this for me because that alone is true worship. That is why Paul says in Romans 12 that you should live your lives as a living sacrifice. Because your very life should be lived out in a way that honors and worships and praises God. Not that you come and sing your songs on Sunday morning or you have your Bible study whenever and then just go out the rest of the week and do whatever you want. But that when you recognize your, your need your position before God and your need for Him to restore you, that your very life should be a method and a manner of praise and worship. That understanding the Gospel should so radically change your heart that you, can, that you are like the disciples and you cannot help but speak about it. And so when you look at your heart, I want to ask you, what position are you in? Are you defensive and putting up walls and making excuses? Or do you recognize your position before a holy God? What power do you cling to? Are you still trusting and trying to achieve what you can in your own strength and your own ability? Or do you say, God, I am powerless in this relationship and I need you to do it for me? What praise 
pours out, not just out of your mouth, but out of your very life? Is it your own strength and your own abilities and your own actions? Or is it the covenant faithfulness of a God who calls you His child and alone has the power to restore? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank You. God, I thank You because we can't do this on our own. God, I thank You because You see uh, people that have turned away from You and instead of just giving us over to our sin, instead of just giving us over and letting us waste away, that You gave Your Son to restore and redeem a broken people to Yourself. God, that You call us Yours before we know that we even need You. And so God, I pray that as we leave here today, as we go to work, to school, to where, anywhere that we go, God, that we would be so captivated and overwhelmed by Your restorative love for us that like the disciples, we cannot help but speak of this Jesus. And it's in, it's in His victorious and beautiful name we pray. Amen.